A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Welcome to Hello Somebody, a production of the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia. Before we begin, I want to give a special shout out to my team. Thank you, Sim, Tiffany, Sam, and the team over at Good Juju Studios, Erica England, Pepper Chambers, the hot one, and my social media team. I would call them a power couple. Edwin Lindo, assistant dean and professor at the University of Washington Medicine, and Dr. Estelle Williams, surgeon and assistant professor at University of Washington Medicine. They are activists, humanitarians, and doing the great work on the ground to make the world a better place. Here we go. Hello, somebody. Oh, that cool hat. I wish I had known. I would <laughs> rock me a little hat too. Oh, I know. Uh, I think you had a, you might've had a hat on when we met once. We in did. In San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, when you were there with Bernie. During the campaign. Uh, during yeah. the campaign at, at Chrissy Fields. Yes. Yep. That's the story of my life. We met right. during the campaign. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, thanks. I thank you again for what you guys do, and thank you for pushing this movement as well. You two have done so much uh, for your community. Let us start with the Social Justice Library. What is the Social Justice Library and bookstore, and how is it serving the community? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, so the library is Estelita's Library, named after our now three-and-a-half-year-old, Estela. And she's a little Afro-Latina spark and joy and love that that walks through the community and it came to be a quick story I, I didn't have a job Estelle was finishing residency and I was taking care of the baby really for her entire first year and we spent all the time at our local coffee shop called the station coffee shop and all the neighborhood aunties came in and black aunties and they're like 
we're going to make sure that she's taken care of. We love you, Edwin, but we need to make sure that this baby's taken care of. And, and they did take care of her. And that community, that sense is what we wanted to build, but scaled up. And Estelita's library was the concept of the work that you do, the work that organizers do on the ground, of knowing that you have a space, a space that is yours, that is the community's, that you don't have to pay for, you don't have to buy something, but you get to sit there, sip on some coffee or hot chocolate, and talk politics. And, and that, the analysis of the exploitative economic system that we live in, or what police brutality has affected in our community and what we can possibly imagine as a future without it. And that, I think, goes even deeper. Come, My family came from Nicaragua, and in many of these countries, there was always a centerpiece where you would come together, where you had what we call our community scholars and yes. community philosophers and the grandpas and grandfathers, yeah. the storytellers. That's right. And we wanted that space. We had never done it before, but I think the power of saying the door is open allowed folks to come in and fast forward three years where I don't want to be self-declared, but we've been called the institution of Seattle. That's a beautiful thing, a beautiful institution at that. And I love your centering of stories. And I mean, I can envision this multi-generational environment that you have created, which is so important. You know, I often think about in our American culture, the notion of big mama or grandma, grandpa, the aunties, you know, it is Mm -hmm. not as embedded in the traditional side of American culture, but those of us, I I would say communities of color bring with them. And we have some historic memory about what it is to lift our elders and see our life, our lives on a continuum. And that continuum includes our elders. Absolutely. And how important they are for us to understand truly who we are and what we can be. That generational knowledge that I think oftentimes gets severed. It does. Intentionally by a system that doesn't want us to care for our elders. We got to throw them away to a senior home or put them on the side so they're not disrupting our quote unquote progress. And uh, yeah, I, I think you hit it on the head. We are books, right? We sell books, we lend books out, but we also understand our mission is to decolonize space and decentralize knowledge. And the decentralizing element of it is that books are highly inaccessible, right? Yes. We may understand it, but our community may not have the time to sit down to read for three hours, right? They're, they're hustling to survive, to pay rent, ends meet, put food on the table. So how can we as a community become translators for the secrets that I say that exist in these books that are sitting there? How do we translate that for our community? Yeah. No, that's powerful. And I off, I do believe that when you're in survival mode most of your life, you don't get to enjoy it. And the system truly is rigged and we have to do something about it. I just happen to believe that the working poor, the poor, the barely middle class ought to have the opportunity from time to time to truly enjoy life. Professor, so that is reading a book, taking mm-hmm. a walk. You know, mm-hmm. taking a vacation every now and then, and even if it doesn't right. take you to the most exotic places in the world, maybe you can go up the street, round the corner to another state, Yep. go to a park. I mean, just really take in life. And that is so lost. So what you 
and the good doctor are doing is so vitally important to the, I would say, the psychological growth, development, and health Mm. of the community. I mean, you all are really tapping into something that generally people don't take as high on the list of things to do, which is to really step back and celebrate culture and to see who you truly are and to find that through conversation, storytelling, and through books. You know, books transport us to places we may never physically be able to go to. That's right. That's right. Powerful. Thank you for that. So you all have sold about 40,000 books? 40,000 in just in the last 10 months. Are you picking up on a pattern? Why why is that normal or is that what's what's going on? Tell us what's going on. No, that's that's not normal. So we actually didn't sell books f- for the first 2 years of our existence. We were just a community library. And I want to touch on that point for a second. You you talked about what what's being created is powerful because it gives space to, to folks who may not have it otherwise. But we would have a lot of, particularly white folks, come in and say, no, but what's your business plan? How, how is this going to survive? How do you make money? I said, I don't have a business plan. Yeah. When you're in the community, there is no business plan to be in community. And I said, we just have one goal. Keep this door open every day. If that door is open, the community may not even come, but at least they know they have a place to come to. And that's powerful. So we first two years, it was just a space. We did poetry readings, we did book readings, we did philosophical discussions, we had impromptu debates, we had salsa and sangria parties, we had baby showers to unhoused folks when it was snowing, sleeping in the main stage of our bookshop. And if it doesn't serve all those purposes, then it isn't actually community. Yeah. I mean, you are redefining what community should mean. I mean, what it what it really means. So I want to go, I want to really now dive into the collection of the Black Panther newspapers. I understand you all have one of the largest collections in the country. What is the significance of having one of the largest collections of the Black Panther newspapers? And I also want to bring that up in the context of Judas and the Messiah. Mm. Oh, Man, let me tell you something. That had me mad, okay? Knowledge is power, but knowledge can make you mad too because it awakens your consciousness. So what is it about the collection that you all have that is uh, waking people's consciousness? Give us some context. Yeah, I'll I'll start us off. So I think by necessity, we must all, if we're actually trying to work towards justice, we must all actually be historians. And if we're not historians then we're actually not achieving or working towards justice. Why? Because we know, is when we know where we come from, we know, oftentimes they say we know where we're going. I say we know where we deserve to be. And the power of that is we're talking about newspapers that were sold daily on the streets of East Oakland, Chicago, New York City. And folks read them. Nearly the circulation at its highest point was 175,000 papers a day. Oh my goodness! And they were just like every daily newspaper, folks read them, put it in the trash. Yeah. And now it's almost impossible to find these anywhere that are readily available. And so the context is: it started April 17, 1967, when a young black man was killed in Richmond, California. Sorry, Vallejo, California. And the Black Panthers 
organized, mobilized from East Oakland, went to Vallejo and said, "We this is the beginning. Yeah. We are going to start publishing a paper. And it was a call to organize against this police terror that occurred. The last issue was printed December 30th, 1980. Yeah. And what I find in in this work and collecting and sharing this knowledge is, again, the intentionality of a system severing us from the deep knowledge of our community, especially the most effective elements of it. And Estelle, can, Dr. Williams can speak to the free breakfast program, the clinic that we have here in Seattle. But I think learning from the analysis of the Black Panthers who were clear about what it meant to have black power, economic justice, they had their 10-point plan, yes. but they also had rules that they followed. And number one rule, which I adhere to, and when I organize, I try to get our community to all agree on, which is you shall not cause harm, steal, or hurt other oppressed people. Yeah. Amen. And when we live by that, then you, you start realizing, what does it mean to be oppressed? And their analysis was so strong, they would stand in solidarity with the young lords, the Puerto Ricans in Chicago, with the Brown Berets in LA, the Mexicans, the the young patriots who are the white Appalachians east of the mountains in New York, organizing with them and saying, look, I get it, we're different color, but our struggle is coming from an exploitative nature of this economic system. Yes, we are black. Yes, we organize for black power, but that's because all of our freedom is inextricably bound to each other. So that's the power uh, that, that we hope it brings. Yeah, love it. Dr. Williams, you want to? Yeah, it was funny because we were just um, back at home in Oakland. Um, my stomping ground, uh, the brighter side of the bay, as I like to call it. My husband originated from a mission in San Francisco. And, you know, we were catching up with a friend in Oakland. And we found ourselves in this deep conversation about just this, um, about the Panther Papers, about, you know, the, and there was just an article I was reading about the explosion of interest, all the apparel that's now coming out with the Black Panther paraphernalia. And it was interesting, um, as we were describing it, I shared a story about how, when I was in middle school, I interviewed Geronimo Pratt. And this is before he passed away, but for those who don't know, Geronimo Pratt was an integral part of, and this is not to do any disservice to all of the black women, um, which we don't talk about enough, you know, which no. wasn't addressed, uh, um, I would say enough in Judas and the Black Messiah, but I want to make it very clear. I'm not counting out as sisters, <laughs> Elaine Brown. and Ela all Yeah, I was about know. to say, she's um, a, ooh, she's a fire. Yeah, she's exactly. fire. Exactly. You know, but um, I had this living legend that I interviewed as a middle school student growing up in Oakland for a school project. And he was in my backyard in Oakland and I called him up on the phone and I remember just talking to him about his experience as a Black Panther. You know, we we talk a lot about Huey P. Newton and, uh, and Fred Hampton and all of these individuals whose stories captivated us and both saddened us in the brutality in which they were taken from us. And yet we have Brother Bobby Seale who's still alive and well in Oakland, who was also one of the founding members of the Panther Party. And we have these living legends. This history isn't dead, it's still alive. We still have Black Panther Party members who are incarcerated to this day as political prisoners in our US um, political injustice system. And while we may have all of the fanfare now around 
know, the history of those who are no longer with us, we still have so many who are with us. And what are we doing to use them as, as my husband so eloquently stated, to continue to educate us, to know where we have been and how we have traversed the path towards justice and liberation thus far, because those we are fighting against, they know all the tactics, they keep track of it, right? And it is us who have to make for sure that we know what tactics have been used against us to know and continue to evolve the same way those we are up against are continuing to evolve to find new ways to keep us oppressed. And so I just wanted to add that as a reminder to the audience, you know, that this isn't history. This isn't just in the textbook. It is still alive and well. And, you know, that speaks to the history that's still living here in Seattle with the original clinic that was founded by the Black Panther Party here in Seattle with Aaron Dixon. Um, and his brother, Elmer Dixon, when they went to a physician, a white physician, speaking about working with allies, a white physician who came, he, who was working here at the University of Washington, he was actually a, a neurologist, correct, Edwin? He was a, uh, a neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeon, that's right, who uh, came here to the halls of the University of Washington and took medical supplies directly from the hospital, loaded it up on a truck, truck late one night and gave it to the Black Panther Party to start a free clinic for the community here in Seattle, initially starting for sickle cell testing to address the needs of our marginalized communities here in Seattle. And from that grew the one of the only Black Panther Party clinics that is still operational here in the U.S. That is amazing. And that history is still alive and well, and it's still yeah. functioning. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong, you know, as we, as we build and create, you know, it is up to us to remember and this is why it's so important to have an understanding of history because, you know, I'm not going to gloss over the fact that we have a Black pediatrician who just resigned from that same clinic because of the racism that is happening within those same walls, right? And so, you know, despite the placard that acknowledges that this was started by the Black Panther Party, it is that ongoing investment by community and understanding what, what were the roots, what was the foundation upon which this is built that we have to continue to carry on that mission and that vision and not let those who seek to control us define the narrative for us. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, there's a saying that if the hunter is the only one telling the story, the lion story is never told. And that's really what you're talking about, Dr. Williams. And you just make me think about the duality uh, that we live in. It's it's more than a duality, but the complexities. Mm -hmm. So to have a black doctor resign from a hospital or clinic that was started by the Black Panther Party, I mean, the irony in that, and that it has to be more than words. It has to come through the deeds. And those deeds have to address the systemic injustices within the healthcare system. And just hearing that the Panthers started this clinic with the help of an ally makes me think about universal healthcare and Medicare for Mm -hmm. all, which I'm fighting for right now. And and Mm -hmm. you all are fighting for so many others of our sisters and brothers who stand on that right side of that righteous indignation that knows that we should not commodify healthcare in the United States of America, the only industrialized nation to do so. I want to go back a little bit before we go forward And Dean, you made me think about when James Baldwin, one of the greatest novelists of the 20th century, I encourage people to read The Fire Next Time. Baby, if you have never read The Fire Next Time, you need to read that book. He's written many, but that one just sticks with me all the time. But one of the things that he, you know, he talked about, and this was a letter to his nephew, just really getting them primed for life. And he said, you were put here, you know, you were placed where you, you, you are placed. You're where you are deliberately. I'm paraphrasing. He was more eloquent than I'm being right now. But he was really laser focusing in on the deliberative nature of oppression and that this country did that to you, he went on to say, for no other reason but that you were black. Hmm. And so I really see what you both are doing is that you are taking this collective 
not just the history, because the good doctor is absolutely right. We have people still living today who live through those things and we lose sight of that. I mean, Chairwoman Elaine Brown is still alive. Mm -hmm. I had her on my show a few months ago and she's on a mission right now Mm -hmm. to bring some justice to someone who went to prison really young. And she believes, and there's some evidence to say that uh, he was manipulated into making a confession. And I really love her, her heart and just that soul that she has from being, she was a chairwoman of the black Mm -hmm. Panther party. And then the point about the Judith and the black Messiah, which is the story of Fred Hampton in Chicago and how the FBI infiltrated with the informant and yeah. a black informant. So sometimes mm-hmm. people are color, but not our kind. And what I mean by that is there's a mentality here. But I even believe that that guy was a, a victim as well, mm-hmm. even though he helped the FBI kill. I mean, they straight mm-hmm. up killed yep. Fred Hampton. And so we definitely have to address those things. But going back to that they put you here for a reason. I mean, do you see the connection or the intersection between what James Baldwin was writing about to his nephew in that book, The Fire Next Time, and, and what's happening today? When we look at Judas and the Black Messiah, the one thing, the one critique I have is that, you know, we have this portrayal by actors and we then from that create a vision in our head. But what we forget to remember is that these Black Panther Party members were kids. Yeah. They were 16, 17, 21. 18, 19, 21 yeah. years old, right? Mm-hmm. And we portray them or we now encapsulate them in this wonderful pictographic of a man. But these were children leading the revolution. That is true. And we always talk about how the children will lead us. And I think that's what Baldwin is trying to make his nephew see, right? Is that you can't be limited by what the world will categorize or box you into. You have to free, as my husband always talks about, we are fighting for a justice or a liberation that we have never seen before. Yes. Nobody has ever seen it. And when we think about imagination and creativity, where does that live mostly? By the time we're adults, we're we're conditioned, right? We've been set in our ways. But young people, the youth, the children, they're free to think, imagine, play, create, And that's how I envision the Black Panther Party with these young teenagers who are free to think and create in their mind a world that they had never seen, but they knew they deserved. And so when I think about Baldwin's words, that's what I always go to. And I want to connect it to one other thing when we talk about like our youth, especially our Black youth or any youth of color. You know, I always go back to when we think about this connection to capitalism and economic um, exploitation of our people. You know, when we talk about unemployment rates, and I always look at these like headlines and sensationalized data that we put out there, and we talk about the employment rate, and and I know, Senator, you you, you hear this oftentimes, you know, the unemployment rate in 18 to 24, right? We talk about that, especially among people of color. And I'm always taken aback when they when that information, especially is used against our people of color, because it makes me think about how We've been labeled lazy ever since we stopped working for free. You seen that meme? I love Come that on. meme. It makes yes. so much sense to me because when we think about white age 18 to 24, we associate them with being at college. Yes. Being in right. school. But our people of color, age 18 to 24, you're supposed to have a job. You're supposed to be working. And if you're not, then what are you doing? But there is no association with us being educated, with us entering these spaces, with us doing what we have 
always been pigeonholed to do, which is to work for an economic structure and capitalist system to continue to make money to oppress us. And I put all of those together because when we think about how the Black Panther Party, how you know James Baldwin was trying to instill in his nephew a different vision, they were trying to create economic freedom outside of that system. They were educating themselves. A huge pillar of the Black Panther Party was around education. Yes. They had to read books daily and and be very well educated, not just on the liberation struggles here in the U.S., but what was happening globally. Right. And to understand the laws, too, mm-hmm. so that they could confront the folks who were uh, leading the system of oppression. I mean, they could quote the Constitution and they exactly. knew what their rights were. It makes me think of... So James Baldwin is actually my most favorite writer in the world of all time. Yes. He writes as though he's sitting across from you at the dining table and he loves you and he doesn't even know you. He speaks to you like you've known each other forever. And he has another quote that I think supplements and is an adjunct to what the, the quote you mentioned, which is, and I'm paraphrasing here, I care so much about this country that I reserve the right to critique it. Oh, yeah. One of my favorites. And that's, right, and that's where I situate myself is people, they, you know, they come to me, Edwin, you're such a nihilist. You just complain about how terrible this country is, that you're oppressed and you're the target and you're a victim. And I say, let's get it straight. You act like I want to be the victim. You act like I want to be situated in this exact moment and place. No, believe you me, it would be great that my wife and I's home isn't valued 20% less than yours in the same neighborhood. It would be great that my child, who's a young Afro-Latino walking down the street, doesn't get terrified when she sees red and blue lights. It would be great knowing that our public schools and our neighborhood are invested in just as much as a neighborhood up the block that has a $1 million PTA endowment, but ours has negative $35. I wish we would be there, but we're not. And Elaine Brown, chairwoman Elaine Brown, I I had a chance to sit with her, talk with her, Shexi, held baby Estella and, and talk to her a little bit. And I remember her sharing with me, she said, Edwin, you're doing great work, but there's one thing I need to ask of you, and that is, you need to stop worrying about what white people say because it's the distraction. And Toni Morrison has a similar quote, right? Toni Morrison yes. said, racism is the distraction. And some people are going to misconstrue that and say, oh, then you shouldn't be worrying about racism. No, it's real. It's consequential, absolutely. But it's consequential through the means of distraction. Toni Morrison says, they tell you you can't read, so you spend your life proving to them that you can read. They tell you you can't do art, so you spend your life trying to show them how artful you are. They tell you you can't do X, Y, and Z, so you spend your life doing X, Y, and Z, and the truth is it's never enough. And so when are we going to start doing it for ourselves? Right? Sister Elaine Brown said to me, Edwin, if you spend so much time responding to the hatred, who's taking the time to build our communities? Yeah. Because you can spend the rest of your life responding to that hatred. And so I've committed, and I think both my wife and I have said, there's enough people responding Who's building? Come on now. Not that we don't need the response. That, that, that has to be, that pressure needs to stay put. And we need to start building the, the blocks. We need to start buying those properties to build affordable housing for a transitional age youth. We need to start building those libraries. We need to start building those schools. I'll tell you a vision that 
may never ever happen, but we're going to declare it into the open so the universe can accept it. Me and my wife said, you know what? The reason we have health inequities is because we ain't got our own hospital. And so how about we start our own hospital, our own primary docs, our own surgeons, our own family docs. And some people say, oh, you're being a segregationist. I'm saying, no, if we learn from our sister, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Professor Crenshaw, who tells us intersectionality matters, when there is a disproportionate harm that has occurred in the past, that means there must be, if we're talking about justice, a disproportionate benefit that occurs in the present. That's right. But people think that reallocation of wealth, of resources, and of services is inequitable because it's, quote unquote, giving people things they haven't earned. Let's be very clear. We stole this land. People worked for free. If they would sue for unpaid wages, this country would collapse. But if you don't get paid for two weeks today, you have the right to sue and you better get that money. But black folks don't even have the right to do that. So what are we actually talking about? We are so indebted to a people that it will be so crippling and I'll make one last point here, is there's many white folks, I give talks around the country and they say, Edwin, I just, you know, I don't know. And oftentimes they start crying. And I said, I want you to be very clear. You should be grateful that black folks and indigenous folks in this country haven't burned this country down already. And what that says to me is that they're giving you the grace to actually do right, but you still choose not to. So how about we change that behavior today? Amen. And I saw a graphic a few months ago that said something similar, like uh, you should be grateful that black people only want justice and not revenge. And that pierced me. It's true. And you're right about our indigenous sisters and brothers, too. And this country would bounce. It could never there. That's a debt. Chattel slavery. It's a debt you can't ever repay. But I want them to start working on it. I do believe in reparations. And yep. this country owes both in direct payments, direct check payments, and also programmatic payments, too. And so this hospital vision that you and Dr. Williams had is just one great example of programmatic ways that mm. the debt can be repaid to the descendants of. Yes. And my God, they got a lot to make up for because it's not even just the chattel slavery. Let's talk about what happened after that. The the black codes, the Jim Crow, the redlining, the health disparities right now, everything you just named about property. I mean, in during the Great Recession and people forget this and and this, you know, we we, I'm old enough to remember the Great Recession. Black people lost 50 percent of their wealth in their homes. So we don't, we don't even have to go way, way back, even though I advocate that we do. However, we can just start right here in the 21st century and, and correct some yep. stuff right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. The legal system that is unjust, absolutely. We can start right now and work our way back. But can we just do some of this stuff right now? The income and wealth gap in this country, yep. uh, the fact that the ultra, ultra, ultra wealthy of this country during the, the, the worst pandemic of our lifetime, not a hundred years have, we haven't seen anything like this. We probably have some elders that are a little over a hundred, but let's just say the majority of us were not around at the time when a pandemic of this magnitude hit. And then we see all the fissures in the system being revealed. Mm. And it just always Mm. boggles my mind how people acting brand new about this. They didn't know black people dying at higher rates, being hospitalized at higher rates. 41% of black businesses go out of business on and on and on for black people and other people of color. The struggle is, as my grandmother would say, show enough, real Mm. and systemic 
problems and challenges require systemic solutions. And that's, yes. that's really what you and Dr. Williams are talking about. And one of the reasons why you are so adored to get out there and really do the deep seated work to plant seeds and cultivate minds and hearts to believe mm. something new, to dream a bigger dream, to have the courage to ask for more, to make the demand is a beautiful thing. And talk about beautiful things. Can we just kind of weave on into how you two met? You know, because this is a love story of epic proportions because y'all doing this work (laughs) for love of community. So what we want to know is how did that love connection between the two of you pop off? Not a PG version, not a PG. Yes, yes. It was PG. It was PG. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season... We are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality 
to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. I want. I want to let my wife tell it because I, I think I embellish sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> uh, I think it's uh, it's always funny uh, when we tell the story because um, you know they always say you have his version, her version, and somewhere in the middle lies the truth. Yes. Um, but we met. I moved here to Seattle in June of two thousand nine, and Edwin came right before for medical school, and Edwin came. Uh, shortly thereafter in September to start at the law school. And we had a, a mutual friend who was in the medical school with me, but had also met Edwin, I think playing basketball or something. They had just uh, come across each other. And he came back to me and told me, hey, I met this great guy. He's from the Bay Area. I know you Bay Area people like to stick together. You know, you should, um, you should connect. And he had told me about Edwin and one other friend, actually, one other um, woman who had come from the Bay Area as well. And naturally, I felt more comfortable reaching out to the woman than I did the man. I'm like, I don't know this random dude. I'm, you know, but I hit up the girl. And me and the girl ended up hitting it off and being real cool because she was also from Oakland, a Latina from Oakland. And so I just completely forgot that I had ever been, you know, told about Edwin until the friend brought Edwin to a, a party we were having um, at the med school frat, y'all. This, yes, this exists. The medical school has a frat house, <laughs> and their only job in this frat house, they got like dirt cheap rent, but their only job was to have this social for all the medical students once a quarter or something. And so they were having their annual Halloween party. Med students gotta have fun too, Doctor. I Williams. guess so, right? <laughs> gotta I have fun. So, so um, I think that the the there's more fireworks around the party than it probably was around our initial meeting yeah. because when we met, I was not impressed. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Ouch. I tried. tried hard. I tried. I she's also, she's taller than me, so I was looking up to her, <laughs> I my, which I still do today. I, got, I had my heels on. I was not, you know, I came to show out. And so, but we met. But I tried day. my best. You tried your best. We met that day. We talked. And then when it was the party was over, he was, um, I was leaving and he was trying to give me a ride home. And I was like, no, I'm cool. I just live around the corner. It was late too. It was like midnight, one o'clock. But he was like, I'll give you a ride. I'm like, no, I live around the corner. I'm good. I'm from Oakland. I'm here to Seattle. Like, I'm good. <laughs> and he kept pushing and kept pushing. And I was like, okay, fine. You give me a ride home. He was persistent. Yeah, he didn't even have a car. He had to go run and find the keys to my mutual friend to try and give me a ride. And in that time, I didn't know he was looking for some keys. In that time, once I told him no and I see him walk away, I start walking home. So then as I'm walking home, all of a sudden, he pulls up beside me. He was like, hey, I was going to give you a ride. And so I was like, oh, my God. So I get in the car. We literally drive up the street, turn right, and I'm like, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) But we exchanged phone numbers, and I think we ended up hanging out like a couple days later. And literally from that day we hung out, a couple days later, we have been inseparable since. So we're 12 years in. Oh, that is Maybe so he beautiful. stalked me every day when I was he, in school. He stalked you. He would send me a text message like, what you doing after class? And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I was picking was up persistent. that stalker vibe. I, I didn't want to say it, but since you put it out there, I was. But no, he was very persistent. Very persistent. Yeah. Determined. Knew what he wanted and exactly. was going after yeah. would, would not be detoured from getting it. <laughs> 
kidding. Oh my God, Doc. And so you guys have been together ever since. Such a beautiful story. And then from that beautiful daughter, and now you are expecting again. Yes. Is it what gives you great hope about for for your unborn child and for your daughter uh, right now? What what gives you hope mm. for their future? I I would say there is a power, and I I want to add a bit to our story. It's actually before October twenty third, two thousand nine, which is the day we met. I, I think our story begins before then, which is through our parents. Mm-hmm. Um, what connected us really was that we were both raised by single fathers. Oh, my. My dad immigrated from Central America and raised a kid on its own. Estelle's father, and Dr. Williams, I hope you don't mind me sharing this story, grew up in Oak Grove, Louisiana. Small town, one road. I think he said it had one stop sign. And there was one phone throughout the whole town that the neighbors shared. And it was an all-black neighborhood there. And he was a sharecropper on the plantation that his grandfather was a slave. This man traveled to Oakland and with the inability to read, started businesses, at least five businesses, currently still has five businesses, two homes in Oakland, and raised two daughters by himself. And one of them is a surgeon that saves people's lives. Come on. I don't even want to call it the American dream. It's our ancestors' journey. You know, when people say, what do you have hope in? It's funny. I I say, I have hope in my ancestors. Because if there's only one thing that I know for certain is that in my veins, I carry, we carry something that is the closest possible thing to the creator. Because the generations and generations and generations, there is at least an ounce of blood in us of people who could never have imagined the possibilities, but they still had the strength. They still had the fight. They had the grit. And and so what we do is we teach our children that. We celebrate Kwanzaa, and every day we have little Estella tell us, what does Umoja mean to you? And this little one who used to come to my class because we didn't have daycare and we couldn't afford it, she would sit in my lectures she would sit in the back of the room, and now she thinks she's a lecturer because she stands up on the couch with her hands clasped together and says, the problem is, <laughs> <laughs> and goes on a, a rant, a beautiful rant about cookies and candy and justice and Dr. King. And if you asked her in every day of Black History Month, we asked her, who's Dr. Crumpler? She said, the first black woman to become a doctor in the United States. And that gives me hope that we can, we can continue our ancestors' legacy of, of struggle. I, I think it's a, I call it a beautiful struggle that, you know, poverty is devastating. We, we both grew up poor. I, I know what government cheese tastes like. I remember pulling out food stamps out of the little booklet, standing in line, and they had to change the cashier box because the, the food stamps only went on the bottom and people hussing and fussing that I'm holding up the line. Oh, you got a witness in me. I've been there, done that as well. Yeah. And it's not that we fight to not go back to that. We fight because no one else should have to experience that. Amen. Dr. Williams, you want to add to that? That was, you know, what we would call that preaches. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I, 
you know, my I, I appreciate my husband because uh, he he's a storyteller, but he also appreciates what history does for us and how it gives us an appreciation um, and an understanding of from whence we came, right? And I remember he recorded my dad one time telling a story about growing up in Louisiana, sharecropping, uh, because my dad picked cotton. So my dad tells stories and knows about, and he told us a story one time about how he knew he was about to leave Louisiana. He needed his last little bit of money to get him up out of there. He was graduating high school. He was like, I'm leaving, I'm never coming back. And so when he was putting cotton in the sack, after every couple rows, he would come and grab a bunch of dirt and rocks and throw it in there to make the bag heavier. And when it was time for him to come up and weigh to get paid, he put it on the scale. And he said, the foreman, the white man looked at him and said, well, hot damn it, Luther, I ain't never paid no nigga this much money for no damn cotton. And he took his money and he left and never looked back. Yeah. And it's those hands that held me. It's those hands that fed me. It's those hands that did my hair. My daddy did my hair growing up because and he he says it. He learned how to do hair, came in horse's mane on the farm. And that's how he knew how to plait and braid my hair. And he was the one who pressed my hair and put it in them plaits for Easter. And he tells me when he looks back on his life, he has no regrets because he said, I made it this far because my mom and daddy prayed for me. Come on. And so seeing what he was able to accomplish, I have nothing but hope for my baby and her future because I pray for her. I pray for the child I'm carrying. We pray. We pray to our ancestors. We pray to the creator. We pray to each other, to her. But we instill that belief because we know that we are capable of immeasurable things. Yes, that preaches too. Well, there's a t-shirt that I that my son purchased recently and it reads, I believe, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. Hello, somebody. Yeah, That's right? it. Hello. Right? And it reminds me of Maya Angelou's poem, Still I Rise. Mm -hmm. Come on now. That's it. That's what you both are talking about. Mm -hmm. And how refreshing is it to tell the single parent story through the lens of fathers? Mm -hmm. Because that part of the story or that side of the story is rarely told primarily i don't think necessarily out of malice but primarily because most single or solo parents it, it falls to the to the woman so it's just you know refreshingly shocking in a way to hear you both tell that story about your your fathers your dads are the ones that that raised you and molded you and cared for you and loved you and helped you become the extraordinary people that you are in this very moment. And I yeah. want this to end. This is beautiful. I mean, I could listen well, to you I, both. And I, I want to highlight, because oftentimes folks hear the story of single parents yeah. and think, oh, it's, it's a disconnect, someone left. And the truth is, both of our mothers became the product of a system. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's not, there was no intentionality of separation. It was a system, different parts of the system that caused our parent, our parents and our family units to break. And so, you know, you keep hearing the stereotypes about, oh, well, the problem is, is that these kids are raised by single parents. My response is, the problem is there's a system that relies on single parents. They want that to occur. They want the family unit to break. Yeah. 
the ability for our families to thrive. And we said to each other, we are committed to each other because it's a revolutionary act. Mm-hmm. When folks say, Edwin, how, how did you get to the place of saying you knew you, you wanted to get married? And I said, because I, I had the elders and I got to a maturity where I understood the revolution starts at home. And if I'm not practicing the principles of revolutionary action at home, then I can't do that in the community. And that's, that's why it, it's something that I'm proud of. I'm excited. I get to wake up next to the love of my life. We go outside and we, we're on a mission. We've been hustling since 5.30 this morning. <laughs> but I wouldn't trade it for anything else on this planet. Yeah, that is so, so beautiful. So beautiful. As I was saying, I, I could listen to both of you talk all day long. I do not want this to end. So we won't let it end. We will promise ourselves that we're going to come back and, and do this again. My, my, my. I am going to read a portion of Maya Angelou's poem, Still I Rise, because that is the energy that you both are leaving me with. And I'm hoping that everybody that has joined us in this conversation on this journey feels the same way you may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies you may tread me in the very dirt but still like dust i rise hello somebody y'all better go on and read that poem by dr maya angelo that is it baby for all time still i we need a witness we need a witness Hello Somebody is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with the season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net.